If you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to Nehemiah. We're actually going to be looking at chapter 11 and 12, so we'll be uh, moving pretty quickly through 11 and spending most of our time on the second half of chapter 12, but I'll walk you through it. Uh, this is, in many ways, this chapter, the one that precedes it, uh, the final images of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've spent so much time in. We've been describing this final scene. If you'll remember Ezra and Nehemiah, it recounts three return stories from exile. Each of those returns have a focus, first to rebuild the temple, then to teach the law, then the building of the walls in Nehemiah, the gates and the walls. And now we're in a section that's a kind of closing final image after those three returns. And I've been describing that final image to you as a kind of spiritual renewal or a revival that's taking place. If you remember at the beginning of this final image, it's the people that began together organically and naturally, no one forcing them into it, but the people drawn by God's Spirit together into a time of repentance and teaching. They actually request Ezra to come read the law to them, this group of people moved by God's Spirit. And so it is, there's this uh, procession of events that takes place under Ezra's leadership as the people respond to what God has done and realize all that he's done for them. We've been looking at that for a few weeks now, and we get the final closing image of that renewal season here in chapters 11 and 12. In many ways, I think this counts as the highest point of the entire story of Ezra and Nehemiah, because in many ways, all of those returns and the achievements of those returns have been building into this final moment of realization that we experience in chapter 12. There they stand, as you'll see in the chapter, in the temple, the temple that had been rebuilt, the law having been read to them by this great teacher of the law, Ezra. And in this chapter, as they celebrate that dedication and completion of the walls, the city of Jerusalem itself restored, it is a high point, that culminating achievement of so much that we've been looking at across this two-long book story that's unfolded. I want to show you this morning what I think is really one single point, a simple sermon in some ways, a simple scene, this final image that concludes Um, You will get to hear me possibly stumble my way through some names, although we're not going to read all of them. You all strangely like to hear me read names uh, in the Bible. I'm not sure what's up with that. (laughs) I think it's at my expense many times, but uh, you're going to notice probably in chapter 11, like we've seen before, long lists of these names and these culminating images, but really a final conclusion, a final image that I think makes such a powerful but a simple concluding note to these stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you've got your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 11, I just want to glance over it, read the beginning, and then uh, show you a little bit of what's taking place, and then we'll jump to chapter 12. So chapter 11 of Nehemiah begins this way. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring, out, to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. If you keep scanning, what we get next is long lists of names, those tribes, the leaders of those families. What seems to be taking place, Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the city, the protection, the defenses of the wall now established, is they're encouraging people to move back into the city. This long list of name recounts apparently this process in which lots were cast and people were selected, a tenth of the people from the land, to leave their homes and move into the city of Jerusalem, where until this time we learn mostly it has just been leaders or those who are serving in the temple. 
We read now about the city itself being populated by people from all over the land that have returned. Casting lots is a strange way of doing it. Uh, you almost get the sense is there's some kind of reluctance taking place. Are people unwilling to leave and come to the city of Jerusalem? But the idea here seems to be a couple of things. Number one, probably there is some reluctance amongst the people. After all, what they're being asked to do is leave their family lands, which we read about here. Remember how important in the Old Testament the lands that had been allocated to their forefathers was to their identity. Now those people are being asked to give up part of that identity of the people's, their own people's land that they've lived on to move to Jerusalem. And then, of course, there's the long challenge that Jerusalem has been under threat. Just because the walls have been built and the gates secured doesn't mean that there's not still opposition. After all, any time there's been invading armies, they've always made their way to the destruction of Jerusalem. And it may also be that these people have just become accustomed to living in the country. If I ask you today to move to New York City, I imagine not all of you's hands would shoot up at that opportunity. We kind of like where we live. It's easy to live here. And perhaps there's something of that going on even in this chapter. But I think the bigger point that's being made here is that those people who return to live in Jerusalem are doing it because the sense they have of being selected by God, that in the casting of these lots and their names being read, they read that event as a kind of calling, that they have been selected from amongst the people called by God to move into Jerusalem and take up the stewardship of that city. You notice in that opening paragraph that it refers to Jerusalem, verse 1, as the holy city. That's actually a a kind of unusual phrase in the Bible, although we think of the holy lands or the holy city of Jerusalem. It seems to be as if they're saying not only is the temple itself a sacred and holy place, but to be selected or chosen or called by God to live in that city and steward the city of Jerusalem is itself a set-apart, a holy experience, a calling. I'm not going to spend very much time on this, but I do think it's worth pointing out, even for us, that places can be a place we are called by God to be and to live and to settle. Often God leads us into not just callings of work to be done, but sometimes just simply places to steward, neighborhoods to be in, relationships to cultivate. And certainly here, those people, this long list of names and families who take up the call to go to Jerusalem and settle and steward that city, sense that that place and the calling to it is a kind of calling they've received from God. Well, that brings us to, if you skim through the list of names on into chapter 12, the list of priests and Levites who take up residence, keep scanning down through 12, and we get to a section entitled in the ESV, Dedication of the Walls, verse 27, Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 27. I want to read the rest of chapter 12 to you in what is, as I said before, this kind of final culminating image of this renewal season and that renewal season, a final image of all of these returns and projects. It all builds to what is really this moment of dedication. And so we read Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephilites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Azmatheth, from the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, we're switching here to what is certainly the story of Nehemiah, that first person account. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, 
and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mattaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Meliah, Giliah, Maiah, Nathaniel, Judah, and Haniah, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and to the gate of Yashana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundreds to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Elkim, Messiah, Menanim, Micaiah, Elakani, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpeters, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzai, Jehovna, Malkjai, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezriah as their leaders. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portion for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Nehemiah chapter 12. What we read about in that final section of chapter 12 is the dedication ceremony of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. The image is, it's a little hard to pick out because the gate names and all of the directions are unfamiliar to us, but the image seems to be that Nehemiah created two giant choirs, calling in all of those musicians from all around Jerusalem, gathering them together and splitting them, dividing them into two groups, and they each set off from the far north point of the wall, some heading south one direction, the others heading the opposite direction, and they literally covered the entire city, marching along those walls until they arrived together and led the people into the temple itself in an attitude, a position of worship and celebration to dedicate the walls. Jerusalem is not a huge city in the time of Nehemiah. It's hard to know exactly how big the city was physically, The walls of the old city today in Jerusalem, which are from the time of the Ottoman Empire much later, but still those older city walls are about two and a half miles in circumference if you were to walk all of them. 
Certainly Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah was smaller than the Ottoman Empire, and so some archaeologists suggest that the entire circumference of that wall they walked may have been a mile and a half or uh, up to two miles in distance. The point is that as these choirs were moving from one direction, circling the city to the bottom of the city, anywhere you stood in Jerusalem, certainly you would have heard their worship, could have looked up to those walls above the city and seen that crowd of singers moving along the tops. In the time of Hezekiah, when the walls were constructed, prepared for an invasion, those walls were measured to be 16 feet wide. So you have large walls, enough room for a great crowd of people lined crossing around the city, singing with their instruments and their voices, their trumpets and harps. And so it is the whole city is surrounded by the sound of those worshipers as they moved across the walls and towards the temple where the people gathered and joined them in worship. Men, women, and children were told, the whole city and those who had traveled in, meeting at that central point of the temple in celebration and in worship. One commentator writes it this way, We may safely assume this celebration to have been a noisy, exuberant, and rambunctious affair. The text states that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. It's a great line because it's probably meant in two ways. Certainly the physical sound of all of the people singing and the instruments being prayed and the shouts of worship would have been heard from people far outside of Jerusalem. But also word of this celebration, this dedication, would have spread to all of those opponents and the nations around them who had sought to stop it, perhaps all the way back to Persia itself and those kings who had granted permission, that this was that great day of joy in Jerusalem in which the people celebrated all that had been accomplished against so many odds. It had to be an incredible moment to put yourself in the middle of it. Reminiscent of those great times, like when David had worshipped and celebrated with that processional that brought the ark into Jerusalem for the first time. Now these great choirs of Levites singing, the people shouting as the city was rebuilt and restored and the sacrifices made in the temple. As impressive as that scene is, I think the key verse is not just the loud joy that spread from the city, but instead verse 43 what I think in many ways is the concluding of Ezra and Nehemiah, that final note, that image, particularly of this season of spiritual renewal. We read chapter 12, verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. To really understand what's being said there, you need to recognize that word joy and the way that it's repeated over and over. It actually comes through a little bit in the English, although it's clear in the Hebrew. Within the word rejoice, we have the word joy. You hear it, rejoice. So if you read it that way as both rejoice and joy, counting which in Hebrew are the same word, five times in this single statement we get the word joy. They offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Hopefully you catch the fact you can't go but three words and get another recounting of the joy that was spreading across the people and across Jerusalem in this moment. How could you describe joy if you had to in any greater way than this? The author seems to not know how to tell you how much joy there was, so instead they just use the word over and over and over to help you get the point. Every other word, the joy that they're experiencing. It's hard to put this in our context to imagine a scene. 
I was thinking this week of perhaps those images, the videos we've seen, the Victory Day celebrations at the conclusion of World War II when the cities were filled with parades and confetti, the celebrations of victory that had come. But this is something more than that. It's not just peace that they've achieved, protection of their city, but worship, a sense of how God has done this at costs and in ways they couldn't have imagined possible. It's as if everything had been lost, and yet somehow, in spite of it all, They had persevered and received all things. How much greater is this moment of joy than just a simple achievement, a simple ribbon-cutting ceremony, or a victory won? This is the kind of joy that comes as surprise, as shock, as gratitude. The final image of this renewal season that we've been in now for several weeks is this, joy. And it strikes a remarkable note considering how that renewal season began as we looked at it a few weeks ago. Do you remember? As the people heard the law being read to them, they suddenly found themselves weeping and grieving, recognizing their own sins and failures and disobedience. Ezra had instructed them to pause and instead turn their attention to God and his faithfulness. But as they came to their prayer of repentance we looked at just two weeks ago, the final note of that prayer was, we are in great distress. What they have felt and recognized and known is not celebration and joy, but fear and uncertainty and distress and regret and tears and weeping. Nehemiah's story itself, the book of Nehemiah, opens with that same note. You'll remember Nehemiah was an official, a cupbearer, serving in the Persian Empire, living and working within the palaces of the capital city of Persia. And he asks a traveler if they know of the condition of Jerusalem. He had not been there, but asked about its state. He learned the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And you remember how Nehemiah responded. As soon as I heard these words, I sat and wept and mourned for days. That's the opening statement of the book of Nehemiah. The distress, the trouble, the shame of Jerusalem, and the weeping and the mourning of those who long to see it restored. Now, the final image of Nehemiah is instead this resounding joy of the people in the city that is heard from as far away as perhaps those same halls of the Persian power. What we're reading is the fulfillment of what God had promised his people, but even with those promises for so long, they could not see how it would be possible. Serving and living and held captive in faraway places like Babylon, their great city having been destroyed and burnt to the ground, who among them could have imagined a scene like this possible, hardly in their own lifetime? Yet here they stood, in that moment of celebration, with the sound of those musicians proclaiming the goodness and steadfastness of God circling the city around them, Jerusalem, rebuilt. Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 51, remember Isaiah being one of those prophets in Jerusalem predicting its coming destruction, but also that someday God would return his people. He stated, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, the city of Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee from them. Remember how Ezra and Nehemiah opened way back in the beginning of the story by telling us that all of these returns that we would read about were to fulfill the things that Jeremiah had prophesied would also happen. 
Jeremiah had predicted that after 70 years, God's people would return to the land. And he had added to those prophecies words like this from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. And with pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hand too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. I've been pointing out as we've been working through this season of renewal in the Nehemiah story that the order of events is really important. Several times, Ezra actually interrupts the people and steps in and reorders the way in which they're responding to their own grief, their own weeping, their own repentance before God. We saw the way they gathered under the conviction, the law being read to them, how they began to weep and grieve for their own unfaithfulness, and then how Ezra stepped in and paused it how he instead turned their attention to the faithfulness of God, that before they were prepared to repent of their own unfaithfulness, they needed a clear image of God's faithfulness and his goodness. You'll remember we looked at that famous line, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we understood it in that moment to mean that God's joy comes from protecting and stewarding his people. But now certainly we see the other end of that promise, That because God delights in protecting and persevering his people through that continued process of repentance and the renewal of the covenant, that his people now, out of gratitude, find their own hearts moved to joy and celebration. I want to suggest to you that joy is the natural fruit of genuine and true repentance. To really repent to see that process of spiritual and renewal and repentance all the way through is to make it to the other end of that experience from weeping and grieving to that overwhelming sense of gratitude and the joy that comes with it. This is really important to get from this story of Nehemiah. All things point us towards that joy that comes by gratitude, not by what we have built or what we have achieved, but by standing in the midst of what God has done on our behalf and recognizing how little we deserve it, we find ourselves overcome with that kind of gratitude that moves our hearts to a kind of joy that we ourselves could not build or achieve. That's the final image. A common Israelite casting lots and chosen by God's calling to move into this holy city standing there in its rebuilt streets and homes, its walls of protection around him, listening to the praises of God as they circle him, moving with that great crowd of people up into the temple to sacrifice and to stand in gratitude and awe at what God has done for his people, 
that God delights in protecting and persevering his people and in receiving it, the overwhelming joy that we receive simply for being participants in what God is doing. The New Testament writers recognize that the end goal of all that we receive, as we talked about last week, this new covenant that we have in Christ, that all of what God is doing and achieving on our behalf is pointing us towards that joy that is ours through Christ. You'll remember from the book of Hebrews that it was for this very joy that Jesus was willing to take on the work to which he was given. The author of Hebrews writes, So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. That Jesus himself came to do this work and offer us salvation. Why? Because he knew the joy that would be produced by it. Or consider what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, that being Christ, you and I who have not witnessed him with our physical eyes, Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter understood the same thing. We may not see Christ, but in spite of it, by his spirit, we know him, and we love him, and we're filled with faith in him. And because of what he has done for us, and by the faith we have, we find ourselves moved to worship and to joy, a kind of joy that at times is inexpressible, that no word captures but that sense of heaviness, weightiness, the glory of what God has done for us. What those New Testament authors pick up on is the same thing we've been seeing in this renewal under Ezra and Nehemiah. That first comes this sense of conviction. That we are not who we would like to be, imagine we should be. That we find ourselves incapable of fixing ourselves or making something of our lives or offering something worthy to God. But then encountering this good news of who God is and what he has done on our behalf that he is steadfast and faithful to his people. And so we come to him in a new position of repentance, knowing that we have nothing but our own humility to lay before him. And then the shocking surprise that he is willing to renew that covenant that we have broken, that he offers us, in fact, a new covenant through Jesus' shed blood. And as we receive it again, What Peter anticipates is what those people experienced that day under Nehemiah, a kind of gratitude that bursts into a joy that nothing else in this world can produce. I want to make this point as simple as possible. I said it would be a simple sermon with one point, and this is it. It's the question, is your love of Christ, your faith in Christ, producing that kind of joy in your life? The truth is, life is hard. Particularly at this moment, it's often confusing. There's plenty of losses and discouragements and disappointments and anxiety and pain. The scripture is not naive to any of that. It doesn't just tell us that Christians are happy people, that Jesus was just a joyful person by disposition. It says instead that God's people and Christ himself would endure the cross, but would do so because of a joy that was set before them, that by faith, they could see and experience. 
Jesus bore the crucifixion, the weight of sin, because of that joy that had been set before him. And so we take up crosses and follow, buoyed beneath the weight of this world with its pain because of that strength of joy that is ours. If you keep reading in Hebrews chapter 12, just after this passage about the joy set before Christ, the author of Hebrews goes on to say this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The words of conviction and sin and weeping and mourning at what has been lost and our inability to obtain for ourselves that salvation. But Hebrews goes on to say, But you have come to Mount Zion, Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant. What it's getting at is that you and I have something even greater. Not a word of condemnation, not a word of inability, our own lack, but instead a city whose gates are open. A city who is filled with worship and praise. A God who, by his own sacrifice, has made a way into that celebration, that city. A new covenant in his blood. Jesus, the perfecter and finisher of our faith towards that end. When you come to Jesus by faith, you do not come to a distant God who is ready to judge. But instead, you come to a God who has set before you a feast, a celebration, After all, isn't that the final image of the Bible itself? That great city descending from heaven and that banquet set before God's people. Those who will follow, who will confess and bow a knee and believe, receive it by his grace. We have something even greater than Nehemiah had. We have access to that heavenly city, that heavenly throne, and the worship and the glory and the joy and the celebration taking place there. C.S. Lewis wrote a biography of his own coming to faith, in which he described moving from atheism to his unexpected conversion to Christianity. He titled that biography, Surprised by Joy. And I think that's what the people, God's people, have always experienced. A sense in which joy is found in the unlikeliest of places. Repentance. Who would have imagined it? Certainly no one in this world sets out to offer us that advice. Instead, we're told to forget about guilt and forgive ourselves and move on and have higher self-esteem. But this suggests that when we humble ourselves, when we repent before God, when we turn towards him and acknowledge our helpless need, how surprising it is through his gospel to find joy worked into our hearts. This is the one point to take away from this sermon. You have not fully or truly repented until you have had that experience of being surprised by the joy of God, having sensed and seen and received something so much greater than you could have imagined, that by his spirit you are overwhelmed at the joy, the gratitude. 
This joy doesn't come right away for Ezra and Nehemiah. It doesn't come right away for the people of Jerusalem. After all, we've spent the better part of four or five weeks now talking about this season of renewal. These events don't play out in a single afternoon. Repentance, uh, prayer, worship, and all of a sudden joy. Instead, we read of a season. Fasting, remembering, praying, studying, and listening to God's word. But as these days of repentance and listening and studying build on, on one another, suddenly that joy is there, present and unexpected, a joy uncontainable and surprising as it's spread throughout the city. What I'm trying to say is that if your experience of repentance does not lead to that joy, then perhaps it's not true repentance, or you've not given that repentance its sufficient time to do its work. Repentance without joy can often just be regret. It's feeling bad about what I've done. It's repentance without a sense of who God is and what God is longing to do in the midst of that act of repentance. When you get the character of God right, when you get the good news of his gospel right, then that act of repentance is not only a sense of turning away, but also a sense of turning to. There's something you receive in that act of repentance. And the full receiving act of repentance is this sense of joy. Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of the church, put it simply, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. That to be grateful for what God has done is to find within yourself new joy. In Scripture, joy is never a command. All you people should leave here today after a sermon on joy and be more joyful. (laughs) If I catch any of you complaining after this, you will have not fulfilled the requirements of the sermon. You get in your car and say, I will be joyful, I will be joyful. Doesn't sound like a recipe for much joy to me. Neither is joy a personality trait. That some people just happen by genetics or life experience to just be more joyful than others. Some of us excuse ourselves away. That's just not how I'm wired, not my personality type. It's also not just a face we put on to show up at church knowing that we're supposed to be joyful because we're Christians. No one here is asking you to pretend joy. No one is asking you to short-circuit that process of grieving or repentance or loss or mourning. But we do say to you, no matter how dark that day, no matter how painful that loss, no matter how deep the sin, you serve a God who takes joy in protecting and steadfasting you through that season. And that beyond that morning, there is a joy that comes with each new morning. Joy is the recognition, the surprise, that what should not be there, what should not be ours, by God's grace and steadfastness is and that it can never be lost. William Barclay, a famous commentator and teacher, a Scottish Bible scholar, said this, The Christian is a person of joy. A gloomy Christian is a contradiction of terms. And nothing in all of religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black clothes and long faces. There is a time and a season for repentance. But out of that repentance should flow joy and celebration and worship. For we have received things that are not our own. We have been given things that we do not deserve. We have been welcomed to a table and a city that is not ours. But by God's faithfulness and goodness, 
It is freely given. And that gratitude moves in our hearts by his spirit to produce this surprise joy on the other side of repentance. I'm going to wrap up and we're going to pray. And my heart for this morning as I was praying about it this week is that we could just respond as they did in an act of worship. I say to you this morning, the joy is yours. Look to Jesus, the perfecter, the finisher of your faith. Hear him speak over you again. By his new covenant, you are forgiven this morning. That God's presence and a relationship with him has been made open to you. His holy city, that mountain, yours to ascend. Access to God is yours by his spirit. So no matter what you face, no matter what you're going through this morning, don't give up. Don't quit in the middle of this process. Repent and weep and mourn and declare your distress to God and then turn your attention to him in worship and watch as he fills your heart by his grace with joy again. Keep pressing for more of God's word and his truth. Keep meditating on what he says through that word. Keep digging into his character and his goodness. Keep his gospel, what he has done for you, in front of you and do it until that moment, that hour, when that repentance turns instead to gratitude and joy that is yours through Christ. We make that our prayer this morning and then worship together. Heavenly Father, none of us deserve what we have. Like those people in Nehemiah's day, we know all too well our own failures and our shortcomings. And God, in this room are those facing hardships, and discouragements, and loss, and disillusionment, and doubt, in ways your people have for so long. And yet the story reminds us that those things are not the final concluding note of what you do, but that final image of what you do amongst your people is your undying, steadfast love and mercy to us. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would work this process in our hearts as a people, as individuals, in the homes. God, do this work within our city and our nation as well. That we would see our sin and our need. That we would turn to who you are in your steadfast love and mercy. That we would repent. That we would receive through this new covenant that is made by your blood through that receiving, our hearts would be filled with joy and worship. So we worship you again this morning. We do it as a declaration of the hope that we have in you, the trust that we have in you, the faith that we have, that no matter what we face in this moment, on the other side of this darkness is the light and the joy and the eternal life that is ours through Jesus Christ. We proclaim it to one another and build our faith again this morning to worship you in that hope, to worship you in that faith that security of all things that have been given to us through Christ. So we pray that by your spirit, you would fill our hearts again with gratitude and with the surprising joy that comes not from our own drummed up efforts, but from your spirit moving and working your presence and your good news into our hearts again. Turn these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and fill them with the joy of your eternal city, your holy city, your presence before us. In Jesus' name we pray.